for joining us on another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study Podcast, taught by Pastor Kirk Hall. We pray that through this podcast that you would grow your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this time, please open your Bibles and follow along as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truths to your heart. Turn all of your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. Flip over there in your Bibles and we are going to begin this journey. And often as I am asked when we start a new study, how long is it going to take from the time we start until the time we're finished? Uh, That's how long it's going to take? I don't know. Tonight we're actually going to cover three verses and we're going to be looking at really the greetings, the initial address uh, to the church that we are going to be talking a lot about. As I told you in our intro lessons, we're going to see three chapters of of deep, rich theology. Um, Pay attention to those things. Because then in the last three chapters, we're going to learn how to apply the theology that Paul teaches to the church. And we're going to see that theology and application, they go hand in hand. And we can't have application until our theology is where it needs to be so that we properly apply the truths that we learn. So last week we began this, we began with an introduction uh, to this book known as the Epistle to the Ephesians, or as we commonly call it, just simply Ephesians. Uh, We covered all the background, all the history of Ephesus. You ought to be familiar with that by now, right? You've heard it on our Revelation study, you've heard it on Sunday mornings, you you heard it on men's Bible study. You ought to know a little bit about Ephesus and what went on there in the days of the Apostle Paul. So we looked last week as well at Paul. We began to uncover his life just a little bit, talk a little bit about his conversion, his calling. We're going to talk a lot about Paul tonight, uh, and very important character since Paul wrote three quarters of the New Testament. It's, it's uh, important that we do learn a little bit about his, about his life and how God raised this man up and ordained this man to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Again, we owe much to the apostle Paul and his hard work as the apostle to the Gentiles and those who he discipled. Because we as Gentiles, we're believers now. We're believers because they diligently obeyed what they were commanded to do by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they continued to make disciples and, and preach to all people the truth of the gospel. And so we're here on the other side of the earth today, saved if you were saved, because of God's plan that he used the Apostle Paul to fulfill in reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. So here we all are tonight. And so let us learn about this more. Let us appreciate it more. And as we're going to see tonight, let us give the highest praise uh, to the Lord and what He's done in saving us and the blessings that He has bestowed upon us. And that word blessing is going to be a very important word that we use tonight because we're going to begin to talk about many of the blessings that we have received as we open this letter up. So it says here in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He then, as he often does in his letters, says grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
So as we look at those three verses, those three verses are going to contain a lot of important truths. And you have your sheet there that you are following along, I hope, tonight, taking notes, writing down the scriptures as I call them out. You can look at them now, or you can look at them later. Make sure that you look at them. Um, we, we are going to take as much time as we need to carefully break this letter down and understand everything that we can understand from it. This letter carries a lot of weight. That's the first thing that you see on this as we talk about this letter to the Ephesians, what we know as we have called it an epistle. And this, again, is one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote this while he was under house arrest, and he's writing this, and he's writing it with great authority. And I want you to see that. This is an authoritative letter. The first thing I want you to pay attention to tonight is when you read the, the words, the verses, the chapters of this letter, it is an authoritative letter. This is not just something that someone on a whim wrote. This is God-inspired, God-ordained instructions for the church from someone who was called and raised up by God as an apostle and an authority in the church to teach them the things that we are going to see as we study this book. So this letter carries a whole, whole lot of weight and a lot of authority. It's going to do us well to remind ourselves of this. This is not optional, right? When we read these things, these are things that we get to decide, do we like these things or do we not like these things? These are things that are solid truths. When we get to the application part, these are not options for us to pick and choose which ones we want to obey and how we want to live. These are Truths that we must, as believers, embrace in our lives. Because this is a letter that comes packed with great authority. Why? Well, the first thing that we need to see is it has apostolic authority. He begins this letter and he says, Paul. Again, I'm not going to talk about Paul's life in detail as we did last week in the intro. I'm going to skim his life a little bit. But I want you to see the importance of that phrase where he says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. We look at this word apostle, apostolos in the Greek. It is simply this, an appointed or a sent messenger. Now, there is a broad meaning to this, meaning that anyone who is appointed or sent as a messenger could be referred to as an apostle. But notice that he tags another thing there an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is an important title. It's not that he's just some guy who has a title as a teacher in the church. He is an authority in the church. He is an appointed and sent messenger. Now, I know all the time when I say this, it makes people mad. Paul was the last apostle. Now, John, we know, was the last living apostle, as we talked about in Revelation. Paul, the last apostle. He starts his letter by letting them know that. Why is he letting them know that? He's not letting them know that because he's somebody. He's letting them know that because an apostle carries the authority of Christ. And so when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is letting them know that the words that you are reading are not just the words of a mere man. They're not just the words of a guy. These are authoritative words from an apostle of Jesus Christ, this appointed 
and sent messenger. In fact, it's very common for Paul to refer to himself as this in his letters to remind the churches of this. In fact, we can go uh, to Colossae, to the Colossian letter, and we can read this in one one. It says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We can then move throughout all of his letters, or most of them, and we can see this, 2 Corinthians. I'll go to 1 Corinthians first. 1.1 says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We can go to 2 Corinthians 1.1. You're not going to believe how it starts. It starts like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. 2 Timothy 1.1, can you guess? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's making it very clear. The authority to, to which I speak to you is apostolic authority. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop there. Titus, he begins Titus, Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is letting them know that the things that you are about to read in this letter are authoritative. They are apostolic in their nature, meaning this, I have received these instructions from Christ. Do you remember the Great Commission? Go and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have taught you. What Paul is saying with this address that he gives is this is an authoritative letter. Why? Because I'm an apostle. Not because I'm somebody. I'm not an apostle because a man called me. I'm a called apostle of Christ Jesus. We saw that last week when he looked, we looked at his conversion and all the things that were surrounded around his conversion and his calling. And so he is this appointed and sent messenger to the churches. This apostolic position is a position of authority in the early church. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us more about this, and we'll dive into that in detail when we get there. But it says this in verse 11 of chapter 4, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. This apostolic office was the office that Paul is saying, I hold this office. And the reason that I hold this office is, as we read on there in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, and we read on verse 12, says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying the whole purpose of my apostolic calling and gift is for the edification and the maturity of the church. So we know that God used these apostles to start the early church, to strengthen the early church. Uh, we, we saw that last week in the life of Paul, where he went somewhere just to strengthen the church. That was his job, to make sure that the church was doing and being that to which Christ desired the church to be. Now, the apostle was the preeminent leader directly under Christ's 
in the New Testament church. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that. It says this, 28, and in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles. And so we need to see that. We need to understand that, that the apostles carried the authority of Christ to the early church. When they taught something, they taught with consistency from that which they had received directly from Christ. That's why there are no apostles here today. The reason that there are no apostles here today is because Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. No one is receiving direct teaching from Christ as these men did. Does everybody understand that? So many people are so confused about that. And they'll tell you, I'm an apostle. Well, tell me about where Christ met you and where did you meet when he was teaching you personally? Where was this? They look at you like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because they haven't studied the scriptures enough to know what I'm talking about. And that's sad, isn't it? Self-proclaimed apostles saying that they're apostles of Jesus Christ, that they have the same weight and authority as the apostle Paul and as Peter, as those who Christ specifically called as his own apostles. No, they don't have that authority. Paul does. He's making that very clear. As he starts this letter, that he is an authority in the church because Christ has given him that position. Again, he makes it very clear. It's not something that I wanted, not something that I desired. In fact, it was the complete opposite of that, right? He was actually fighting against the church. However, God had his sovereign plan. It was bigger than, at the time, Saul. And he had a plan to change Saul from Paul and to call him to be an apostle. Even Paul understands this, and he says this, that I was a, an apostle who was abnormally born. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 8. He speaks of this, and he says this, and last of all, he appeared to me also. He mentions all the other apostles. He said, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What he's saying there is that I didn't receive my calling in the same manner as the other apostles did. However, I am equally called. I meet the criteria that is required. I have learned personally from Christ. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He always remained humble about that. I don't deserve anything. This is all by grace. In fact, he says it in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. He said his grace produced the effect that God desired that it produced. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Paul, again, always turning all of the praise, all of the glory back to God and His grace. Paul realizes this, the only authority that he has is the authority which has been given to him in Christ. It's, it's like us today. The only authority that we have is the Word of God, right? The teaching of the apostles who taught the teachings of Christ. This is our authority. The difference between us and the apostles of the day we're looking at in Scripture, they receive those teachings directly from Christ. So as we look at this, see that this is an authoritative letter. It does definitely carry spiritual weight. Paul, this apostle with the authority that was given him, though he was abnormally chosen, Differently from all the other apostles, he was still a chosen apostle of Christ. How do we know this? It was confirmed by the message that he preached. He preached the same gospel 
that Christ preached the same gospel that the apostles who directly walked with Christ and followed him prior to Paul preached, the things that he taught consistent with the other teachings of the apostles and consistent with Christ. Now watch this. He worked miracles. He performed miracles. He at will because he had that same power. Those people who claim to be apostles today, they can't do this. They can say that they can do this, but Paul would walk past people and his shadow would heal the sick. Now, I invite anyone, right, all the people who want to say that they're still an apostle with this same type of authority, I invite anyone who says that I am that guy to come to Key Life Fellowship. I will tell you the exact time, the exact date, I will bring all of the sick people that I know. Did you know this? Every time Christ and those apostles who Christ gave the same authority, every time they attempted to heal someone, they were healed. So I'm going to say this to all the apostles. Whenever you want to, I will set up a time and a date. We will pay for the electricity. We will pay, we'll even cool the place off for you. We'll pay for the air conditioner. You come up here. I'm going to the hospital. I'm getting all the sick people that I can get out of the hospital. Y'all can help me. We can break them out. We're going to bring them up here, and we're going to tell them, okay, if you're an apostle, now you have the express authority of Christ to heal at your own will. Do it. When this happens, Kirk Hall will be the first one. You can document this. I will be the first one to tell all of you and that person, I was wrong. But I've made this claim over and over and over and over again, and no one has produced these so-called apostles. Because Paul had authority that with his death, and then we know with the death of all of the apostles, that authority died with them. Now, before you do like so many people do, and say, well, does that mean you don't believe God can do miracles? God does miracles every day. Who brought God in this conversation? We're talking about God called men named apostles of Jesus Christ. Don't dare turn it and say that I don't believe that God can do supernatural things. Don't dare turn it and say that I don't believe God can heal people. He can. God can do whatever he desires to do. But God raised up a special group of men, and they were confirmed by these things, Paul being one of them. So we don't have to throw out a resume for Paul so that you believe. His resume speaks for itself, doesn't it? He was an apostle. The dangerous thing that we see today are those claiming to be apostles who don't carry the same kind of authority and weight that the true apostles did. They're only pretenders. They may be apostles in the sense of the word that they are called or sent messengers to preach the gospel. But in all reality, couldn't we all say that we are apostles in that sense of the word? But none of us carry the authority that Paul is saying that he has here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He met the requirements. He gave the evidence. So we see that this letter is authoritative because of apostolic authority. Many people ask all the time, well, why are these people who wrote the Bible, the men who God used, why are they any more important than any other people? Because they were apostles who spent time with Christ or they were men who spent time with apostles and recorded the ministry of these apostles or the ministry of Christ. That's where their authority comes from. It always goes back to Christ. If you, as a man of God, have any authority, it comes from Christ. You don't have any authority on your own. It's just like this church. 
Kirk Hall has no authority. The elders of this church have no authority. You know who the authority is? Christ, the Word. So the authority that we have, we hold in our hand. And we hold in our hand what these who had this office of authority were used by God to pen so that we could have it in our hand. So our teaching is consistent with those who had that authority, that we are not the authority at all. Not only do we see that this is authoritative because it was apostolic in its nature because of the apostle of Christ Jesus, as he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he says this interesting term. Don't read over this. Every time you see this in Scripture, pay attention to what it means. By the will of God. Paul's saying, not because I had a great idea to be an apostle, not because I, you know, woke up one day on the road to Damascus and made a good decision to follow Jesus. It didn't work like that. Go back and read the account. Paul was content with being a murderer, thinking that he was doing a noble thing. However, Christ had a totally different plan for his life. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So when we look at this letter, it's authoritative because of apostolic authority, but it's also authoritative because it is ordained of God. When the apostle Paul wrote this down, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, just as everyone else who, who wrote anything in Scripture was carried along by the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from his own mind. It didn't come from his own thinking. It came from the things that he had received from Christ as the Holy Spirit recalled those things to his mind. He then, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, penned those things out. That's why we can firmly claim that the Scripture is without error because God superintended every single letter of the Word of God. So as we see this, it's ordained by God. He says, by the will of God. Paul was not writing these things. Paul was not speaking to this church against the will of God. Nor was he even saved without the will of God. He understands these things. We're going to see that as we, as we unfold Ephesians. Paul understands God's pure, pleasing, and perfect will. He's teaching that to us. He's teaching that to the church then. He'll be teaching that to us now. We'll see these lessons that continually flow off of these pages, the truths as they unfold in regard to God's sovereignty over all things and God's will, why it is so important that we see these things are all by the will of God. Paul is saying this, I'm Paul, that doesn't count for anything, but I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I am a chosen man. He was chosen by God's will. In fact, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we looked at it last week. Ananias, uh, in, in, in that account there, God told Ananias that Paul was a what? A chosen instrument. That means this, that God chose Paul as a tool to be placed in his own hand to be used for God's glory. An instrument that was chosen by God. Now, he didn't look like much of an instrument, did he? In fact, he was opposed to God and didn't even know it, an enemy to God, just as we all were apart from Jesus Christ. However, God had a different plan and a different will. Paul understood that. He was chosen by God's will. Not only was he chosen by God's will, he was called by God's will. We learned about that. The effectual calling. Paul says, this is not without effect. I was called and an effect was produced. And the effect was my life changed forever so that I can see to it that the Gentiles hear the true gospel, the Gentiles receive the true teaching of Christ, and the Gentile church flourish and grow and mature. 
He understood that. He understood what it means to be effectually called by God. Being called by God and seeing the effects that that produced according to the will of God. Paul was saved by the grace of God. Again, according to God's will. When you receive the grace of God, it is because God has willed that you receive the grace of God. What does that cause us to do? Fall on our face and say, thank you, God, in humility. Because your grace is a gift. And as with any gift, does the giver have to give that gift? Or does the giver choose to give that gift? Paul understood that. I, I am here. I am writing to you. This church, here in Ephesus, I am writing to you. In the position of an apostle of Jesus Christ, because God willed it. He willed every aspect of his life. He understood that. Paul was commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. Why? Because Paul ran for it on, on some election, right? They were having an election. Who would like to be the next apostle to the Gentiles? And Paul put his name in, and another guy put his name in, and majority ruled, right? And that's how Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. Or was it, as Paul said, according to God's will? It's interesting that we in America think that everything has to be a democracy. <laughs> Christianity is a theocracy. God decides. We submit. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our ruler. Paul commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles by God's will. Paul then carrying out all aspects of his ministry. How? In accordance with God's will. Have you ever studied the life of Paul? No matter where he was, whether he was being shipwrecked, whether he was imprisoned, whether he was being beaten, he knew this, that all of those things were because God willed those things. Even his suffering, he was concerned with being in the will of God. Oh, what, what if we would understand that in the church today? That, Lord, if it's suffering, I want to be in your will. If it's prospering, I want to be in your will. If it's somewhere in between, I just want to be in your will. Paul says that. He says, by the will of God. He lived his entire life after his conversion. By the will of God. God. Very important lesson for us to see there. Paul wrote this letter specifically. This is what he's saying here in this opening address. In accordance with God's will. As the Holy Spirit prompted him and carried him along, he was writing to the church according to the will of God. In fact, he is unveiling the will of God to them. We're going to see the word mystery over and over and over again in that principle. Where Paul's going to say, this, this mystery, what mystery is he talking about? He's talking about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ that was kept hidden in the Old Testament. We see types and we see shadows. Paul's going to bring that great clarity to the church. He's going to say, here, the mystery that was once hidden is now wide open. God in his will and his plan showed it to me so that I can show it to you, so that you can know the depths and the truths surrounding Christ. Paul, walking in this authority, Ordained by God. That's why this letter is an authoritative letter. Secondly, I want you to see this, that this letter is an addressed letter. Now, this wasn't just some random thing and somebody wrote it down and flew a paper airplane off of a building and somebody walked past and found it and said, hey, this seems, seems good, flows, it's nice, articulate, well put together. Well, let's, let's just read this to people. No, this is specifically intended for a specific group of people. Look what he says next. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's look at this address to the saints 
in Ephesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's break that down. To the saints, hagios in the Greek, the called out or holy ones, the holy people that God has through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice of atonement, has set aside for himself. He's addressing the saints, those who have been redeemed through Christ Jesus according to the will of the Father. He's letting us know this. Here's who I am writing to. The saints, those who have been perfected and made holy through the imputed and perfect righteousness of God that is found only in Christ. Pay attention to that. Because that's what Scripture says we who are in Christ are. We are holy. You say, what do you mean I am holy? I don't feel holy. I want you to understand, in your standing, you are as holy as you were ever going to be because of Christ. His righteousness, His perfection has been imputed to you. Now, in the state that you live in, we know that is sanctification. You are becoming holy. Why? Because that's God's will for His children. But it all begins with a declaration. And that declaration is this. God has declared you perfect and righteous because the imputed righteousness of Christ has been applied to all those who believe and trust in Christ. I wish the church would understand that, right? We would never have to struggle with doubting salvation again. We would rest in justification in Christ and by faith in Christ and that and that alone. He's writing to these people who get that, the saints, those who have truly been redeemed, perfected and made holy through the imputed and perfect righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, watch what it says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. We're the us there. We're the antecedent to that pronoun if you're in Christ. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a statement. The righteousness of God. We see that same statement again in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. When he says, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Again, there's that mystery. It's been made known now. And the law and the prophets pointed to this righteousness that comes from God, and the righteousness that comes from God is Christ. He goes on and he says this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. So if you believe in Christ, you trust in Him as your Lord and Savior, the atoning sacrifice for your sin, the fact that He went to the cross and bore the wrath of God in your place, and that is your only hope of life and life eternal. If you have trusted in that, man, listen to me. This letter is to you. He says, to the saints, the holy ones who have been set apart, who have been deemed righteous, who are justified in the eyes of a holy God. You say, I don't deserve that. I know. Isn't grace wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that we don't deserve it? We know what we deserve. But God in His grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us His own. We're the saints. He's writing to the saints. Hagias, the holy people of God. 
those who have been called out, those who have been perfected, those who have been deemed righteous. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says this, and by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I could have asked you guys the question prior to that verse and said, how many of you are holy? Many of you would have said, not me. I would have argued the fact, I am holy. Well, who do you think you are? I think I'm nothing, but I think much of Christ. And his word says that I have been made holy through his sacrifice. The body of Christ has made me holy once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when the, this priest had offered for all, all time but one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down, why? Because the work was done. It goes on and says that since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You say, wait a second. He said we were already made holy. Yes, I told you. In your standing, you are holy. But he is also perfecting you in the state that you are in through sanctification, the indwelling Holy Spirit. As we learn the Word of God, he is perfecting and refining you so that one day your standing and your state will culminate in ultimate holiness. You say, well, I see this in this lifetime. No, that's what glorification is all about. When you are glorified, your state and your standing then collide, and you will be holy in the presence of God forever, or you could not come in to the presence of God. Thanks be unto Jesus Christ for His imputed righteousness. We see that He's addressing those saints, those people who have been made holy, those who are in Christ. We're standing before God, now justified because of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. Many times this passage only used for the husband and wife relationship, but watch what he says here. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he do this? Why did Christ give himself up for the church? Watch what he says. To make her holy. Why? So that we could be called the saints of God. So that we could be a part of that chosen and holy and royal priesthood. It says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray that you men... Grab that, understand it. Better put, I pray that that grabs you and you understand that. That the only righteousness that I have is Christ. But the only righteousness that I need is Christ. He's addressing the saints, those who Christ died to make holy. Potentially, and I say this word potentially for a reason, He's addressing those saints at Ephesus. The reason that I say potentially is some believe this. Some believe that this letter was initially addressed to the church of Laodicea. And that as we saw in Revelation, those churches in Asia Minor, this letter then went from one church to the next. And Ephesus was, in many people's minds, the place where this letter was held 
and esteemed, and it became known as later a letter to Ephesus. However, no clear evidence that that is the case, no real clarity on that that makes me say um, that's what it is. But it's true that many of the early manuscripts, they don't contain where it says to the saints in Ephesus that in Ephesus is alleviated for some, from some of the early manuscripts. And some of the early manuscripts, it's there. It's really insignificant because he's writing to the saints. Some believe, as I said, that it was intended for one place initially and then passed along. Um, but more accurately, I believe this, that this letter is probably um, addressed to the believers throughout the ages. Because reason being, there's really nothing in here specifically written to Ephesus. Meaning it doesn't talk about anything that was going on. That's why we looked at the background of Ephesus. He didn't say anything about the worship of Artemis, pagan idolatry, the worship of the Roman emperor. He doesn't, he doesn't speak of any of these things that would make us say that this is just to Ephesus. So many people say because Ephesus is not there in some of the early manuscripts, it's just simply to the saints. Theodore Beza, I know that's a name that many of you have never heard, but he is the successor to John Calvin and an often unnoticed um, man who was used in the Reformation even after John Calvin following in his steps. He believed this exactly. He believed that this book, Ephesians, it was intended to circulate throughout all of the churches, right? The churches of the day, the churches of yesteryear, and the churches of now, right? So when we read this, we can say when it's addressed to the saints, we can confidently say that this is addressed to us. There are truths here from the Apostle Paul, and these truths apply to the church here at Key Life Fellowship in 2023 in New Caney, Texas. Isn't that interesting that we can come to that conclusion just as Beza came to that conclusion way back during the Reformation? He goes on to say this after he addresses this to the saints in Ephesus. He says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Very important statement here. What does that mean? Those who are truly saved. Right? Not people who are just pretending that they're believers. To those who live a life of faithfulness to Christ. If you don't live a life of faithfulness to Christ, you're not a faithful believer. That means you're not a believer at all. Because the saint is the faithful believer. So he's addressing those faithful believers, the true believers, those who remain faithful to Christ, to the end. Those are the true believers. We know that there's much going on in our church culture in the, the way of deconstructing, right? That's a fancy word from, for apostatizing from the faith or dabbling in apostasy. Be careful if you dabble in apostasy because you might drift off into it. Many, many who drift off into apostasy and final apostasy, we see that they never return. Just ask Judas. So be aware of that when you're hearing so much about these people who are deconstructing their faith. I don't want to live the faith of my mom or the faith of my dad. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. You know what usually happens? They deconstruct their faith all the way to atheism, and then they no longer believe at all. Not even a superficial intellectual belief. They just discount God completely, fall away from the truth, never to return. What man calls deconstruction, God calls apostasy. 
true believer will remain faithful. The true believer is the one that the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, when he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. He says the true believer does not shrink back. I don't have any reason to deconstruct. Why? Because my faith is not my own. My faith is a gift of God's grace. Why would I deconstruct something that God has constructed? We look at this, and it's very important that we understand that, who he's writing to, the saints, the faithful in Christ Jesus, those who are persevering in the church, those who are persevering under persecution, those who are in this room tonight who are persevering faithfully in Christ. We can come to a conclusion as we read this letter that it was addressed to true believers. Since it is addressed to the believers, then we can do this. We can realize that these truths are for us. And then we can apply these truths. Now, this is not like reading Jewish history that applies only to the Jews. This is reading something that applies to each and every one of you who profess Christ in this room. This letter is just as much to you as it was to whatever church received it the first time. That's why I said that's really insignificant. I don't care if it went to Ephesus via Laodicea or if it went to Laodicea via Ephesus. I lean toward the ideas and thoughts of Beza that says it made its way around the church. Why do I do that? We have it right now. How did it get to us? <laughs> it didn't stay in Ephesus. It didn't stay in Laodicea. Whatever road you take, here's the good news. It got to us. And we're going to see as we study through this book, we're going to be glad that this book made its way to us. Because it's going to change our lives. That's what I look forward to. I look forward to this book changing your lives as you study it as men of God, the saints, the called out ones, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, I pray that you know that, that you know that that is who you are, that you know that this is being addressed to you. I don't live in a state of doubt. Trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Walk in assurance of the promises that He has made in regard to eternal life, forgiveness of sin, salvation. We move to the third thing tonight, the final thing. This is an appreciative letter. I say that because Paul is going to talk a lot about blessings and riches in Christ. Those things ought to cause us to move to a deeper appreciation for Christ, what He's done for us. If, if nothing else, if you're a believer here today, when we get through studying Ephesians, you will have a deeper appreciation for the riches and the blessings that we have been given in Christ because they are all grace. We deserve none of them. We're going to see lots of them. This is an appreciative letter by nature. Paul's encouraging uh, the believers here to examine all that they should be thankful for. Isn't it interesting how, even as we approach that time and season in our culture, Thanksgiving, right? We take one day out of the whole year and encourage people to be thankful. <laughs> May it never be so for us. But you know that day when we really start focusing on Thanksgiving, have you ever spent time just really thinking about all the things that you have to be thankful for? And you realize that you can't exhaust that list. You can never run out of things. About the moment that you think that you've gotten to everything, right? You're thanking God for this, you're thanking God for that. All of a sudden, something else comes up. I, I just, I encourage you to do that when you have some time. You don't have to do it on Thanksgiving. Let every day be Thanksgiving. Just sit back and begin 
Lord, show me the things that I have received from you that I need to be thankful for. It starts with that breath you just took to say that prayer. Thank you for that breath. Because you know every day is a gift from God. Every, every day is a blessing. Paul wants these people to understand that, to, to evaluate the blessings that they have received from the Father and from the Son. Uh, this should always result in praise, right? When you get through with that, thinking about all the things that you have to be thankful for, and, and you're there for hours, and you realize, you know what? I'm never going to exhaust this list. I'm going to pick up tomorrow where I left off. And he's going to give you new reasons the next day to be thankful, so you're never going to catch up with the list. But you know where you always find yourself? You always find yourself in a place of praise, don't you? You're just thanking God. Thank you, God, that, that you would do that. Isn't that where we should live as believers? Watch what Paul says in, in verse 2 here. He says, as he often says to the churches, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very important things there. He's encouraging them to be thankful for those things. And then he goes on, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's reminding these Christians of something that we often forget to do. He says in verse 3, an interesting word, praise. Now, we don't really understand that word in our culture. Well, let me just say this. We don't understand it in the right context. That word praise that he uses there in verse 3, it is the same word where we get our English word, eulogy, where we eulogize someone. It is the word you you log atos. And when we see that word you log atos in the Greek, that is the English, in the English, the equivalent to a eulogy. Now, what do we usually do? We wait until someone is dead to eulogize them, to praise them, to say all of the good things about them. You've all been to the funerals, right? We get there. We knew the guy. And they come up with all these good things about him that we never knew, right? And they never say any bad things about the guy when they're eulogizing him. Now, we know that we can't say anything bad about the Lord. All we can do is praise him for his goodness and his grace and his mercy. But when we think about that concept, we really begin to hone in on what praise really is all about. We are really giving a eulogy where we share all of the good characteristics all the good blessings that someone has poured into our lives, all the reasons that we have for thanksgiving, appreciation. Paul is saying this here to the church, that the source of our blessings, all of them, is God the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. And it should result in a well-deserved eulogy from our lives, a constant state of praise, of thanksgiving. So believers should be, according to what Paul begins to speak of here, thankful for the blessing of grace, right? He says, grace and peace to you. He starts by reminding them of two main principles in Christianity, grace and peace, to which we're going to look at grace first tonight, because that's where he started, grace and peace. And when we look at grace, we think of God's undeserved blessings in our life. Paul is going to take much time in these first few chapters of Ephesians 
speak much about the blessing of God's grace in our lives. Why does he do that? He wants the church to be amazed by the grace of God so that they will properly eulogize God the Father and God the Son with praise. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. For those of you who think you're spiritual, listen to that. The ultimate test of your spirituality is how amazed are you by the grace of God? How many times we go throughout our whole day and never even meditate one moment on how gracious the Lord has been to each of us? Be amazed by His grace. Paul desires that. In fact, he reminds them of this. Grace and peace to you. Abundant grace. The abundant grace, he's reminding them of, that has been poured out by the Father through the Son. Because Christianity without the gift of God's grace is no Christianity at all. Where would we be without the gift of God's grace? I can tell you where Kirk Hall would be. Lost. Condemned. Don't forget to praise God for the grace that you have received. You say, well, what is of grace? Let me make it simple for you. Everything. You know, even the lost man who does not even acknowledge God, nor does he acknowledge the Son of God, the lost man right now receiving the common grace of God and the fact that God has let him live, God is letting him breathe, God has given, given him a wife. God has given him children. God has given him a job. God provides for him through that job every single day. And he doesn't even understand it. Now, those of us who are in Christ, when we see the word grace, it should be amazing to us. It should be amazing as it once was in the church of Christ. Amazing. He then moves on to peace, right? Those two that go hand in hand. He's reminding them. Don't forget about the peace that you have received. Grace and peace to you. Paul says, says this, not from me, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's where grace and peace come from. You know why you have peace? Because God has given you peace. You know why I have grace? Because God has given you His grace. Grace and peace. He says, be thankful. Praise God for the peace that He gives you. What a blessing. Peace from God. Uh, you know, the world desires peace because their whole life is in turmoil, and there is no true peace apart from Christ, the Prince of Peace. And in Him, we receive peace from God. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. He gives us what Scripture calls the peace that surpasses all human understanding. Oh, should we be thankful, men, for that peace? Constantly. To be able to lay our head on the pillow tonight and know that we have God's peace abiding in us. Peace from God. What a gift of His grace. But also peace with God. When you think about that for a moment. Before you were a believer, you were at peace enmity toward God. Remember what he said to Saul at his conversion? Why are you kicking against me? Saul thought, man, I'm doing good things for God. 
I'm trying to totally destroy this thing called the way, this cult that has risen up. And God says, because you're doing that, you are against me. All unbelievers are in a state of enmity toward God. But Romans chapter 5 tells us this in verse 10. For if when we were enemies of God, God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? It is Christ who reconciles us to our Heavenly Father so that we are no longer enemies. He goes on to say, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He says that relationship that was once hostile between you and God has now been reconciled through the Lord Jesus Christ. That means this. I can lay my head down tonight and go to sleep knowing that I am at peace with my Maker. Knowing that whatever happens in the middle of the night, I can rest in the fact that I have peace from God and peace with God. What a blessing. Not only that, peace from God, peace with God, but also peace with other men. Ephesians, we're going to learn this, that the Jews and the Gentiles were not always at peace with each other, were they? But Ephesians chapter 2 is going to teach us a little bit about that. It says this in verse 14, For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. What is he talking about? Making peace between Jews and Gentiles through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He says this, the hostility between man, between the Jew and the Gentile, it is over in Christ. And what he has done, not only has he reconciled you with God, he has reconciled you with every other person who believes from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And so we see it is in Christ that we should be thankful for the blessing of grace and peace. Peace from God, peace with God, also peace with man. As we continue to look at this letter being appreciative, he goes on to encourage us to be thankful for the blessing of fellowship with the Father and the Son. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from our Heavenly Father and from the Son, the Lord Jesus we ought to be thankful for the Father and the Son all at the same time. 1 John chapter 1 says this about this fellowship. Verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. This is John, another apostle, saying, I'm an eyewitness, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Watch what he goes on to say. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Here's the reason why. Why did he proclaim the gospel to them? Watch this. So that you may also have fellowship with us, other believers, and watch this. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You want to walk in complete joy? Understand the fellowship of believers 
and the fact that we have a fellowship of believers because we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't stir you to a position of joy. Nothing will. You need to be saved tonight so that you can walk in the fullness of that joy, that your joy can be complete, knowing, being thankful, as He is encouraging us to be, for fellowship with the Father and the Son. This life that we have, this fellowship that we have, we know was planned by the Father. You don't fellowship with the Father because the Father didn't have a plan. He had a plan. What was that plan? To redeem people for himself. You ask this question, why would God ever want to fellowship with me? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Now look at me. I ask myself over and over and over again, why would God ever want to fellowship with me? I don't get it. That doesn't change the fact that he wanted to fellowship with me to the degree that he sent his only begotten Son. He didn't need me. He's a God who is in need of nothing. Please understand that, man. He didn't need any of you. He surely didn't need me. However, he chose to graciously allow us fellowship with him. What a privilege that is. What grace that is. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He's called us into fellowship with His Son. We get to enjoy that fellowship because of His faithfulness. We had a thinking for it, that blessing of fellowship with the Father, with the Son, that was planned by the Father but procured by the Son. We don't have to go into great detail about that to understand it. It's the Son who made this possible. How did He make it possible? Through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. He purchased men for God from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. We're thankful for that because we're here tonight because the Son has procured our fellowship with the Father and with the Son through His precious blood. And then proven by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit confirms our fellowship with God, doesn't He? If you're a believer here today, you know that you have fellowship with God because the Holy Spirit makes that known internally. You know that you have fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. Because when we fellowship with the Spirit, we fellowship with the Father and with the Son. The three are one. We see a Trinitarian blessing there. That we have been blessed with fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Paul reminding the church, praise Him for that blessing. Don't let that pass by unnoticed. So we ought to be thankful for the blessing of fellowship with the Father and the Son as we look at this appreciative letter. He's encouraging the church to appreciate these things. And then he goes on, and we'll end it here tonight. He says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now let's just look at that for a second. As if grace and peace and fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit were not enough, he says, and he's also blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Now, what we're going to see is the Ephesian letter then goes on, and he's going to quickly begin to describe what he's talking about by every spiritual blessing. He's wanting us to understand that. We're going to see that in the next lesson. But he wants us to realize that we need to be thankful for every other spiritual blessing in Christ. We're going to see that unfold as we see his teaching. We see the ideas that he pronounces in regard to the riches, the blessings that we have in Christ, that we as his saints have the privilege of walking in and receiving. 
So we have grounds to be thankful. This is an appreciative letter, a letter that should cause the church to get on their face and to say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your work in redeeming me. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your peace, for your fellowship, for your communion with me. Because I once was cut off from you because of my sin. But my sin could not keep you from rescuing me. You did what you had to do on a cross so that I could be reconciled according to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. May I live my life forever eulogizing you, Lord God, for what you did that you didn't have to do, but you chose to do. So as we begin the study of this epistle known as Ephesians, let us receive the authority to which it was written, the apostolic authority of Paul, the fact that it was ordained by God, that Paul wrote these things down so that we could read them and learn them. Let us submit to that authority. Let us see these truths as they apply to our lives. Let us praise God deeply for the things that we see. Let us live our lives in thanksgiving. Not just a one-time event, but every moment of every hour of every day. Let us be men who eulogize, openly praise our Savior for the blessings and the riches that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for each of these men. Thank you for these three verses as we have begun this study. Just a glimpse into what we are going to be seeing as you unfold these truths to us. Lord, let us be excited. Let us be encouraged. You desire for us to see these things. You have preserved them. You have kept them. So that now, nearly 2,000 years later, we can receive the same instruction. So that we can live our lives to bring you glory and honor as we're here on this earth. So that we can understand the depths of your mysteries, your wisdom. So that we can apply these things to our lives so that we can be used for you, the furtherance of your gospel on this earth while we're here. God, we pray for each man here that he begins to absorb these truths, that he meditates on these truths, that these truths cause him to grow in Christ as he learns more about you, as he sees more clearly how worthy you are of all praise and honor and adoration. We give you all the thanks all the praise for what you're going to do. We look with anticipation. We look with excitement to what's going to come. May everything be done according to your will. May your truth be unfolded by your spirit. May we be forever changed by the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. 
Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world. 